You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Transforming the Soul. This is the second volume, Collected Works number 59. It is translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. This is the last lecture in the book and in this cycle, Lecture 9 entitled The Mission of Art and given on the 12th of May, 1910. The investigations we have been making in our lecture cycle this winter, on the subject of human soul life, shall conclude with what can be said to connect this up with an area into which flow tremendously rich treasures of the inner life. Here then, to end, are some observations on the nature and significance of art in the course of human evolution. And this field, being such a broad one, we shall confine ourselves to the art of poetry, and shall obviously only have time to consider the highest peaks in the field of human achievement. The question could easily be asked, quote, What do all the investigations we made this winter that were particularly aimed at looking for truth and knowledge in relation to the spiritual world have to do with the area of human activity that is primarily expressed in the element of beauty? And in our time, it would be very easy to take the view that everything connected with knowledge and cognition should be kept far away from what comes to expression in art. A widely prevalent belief today is that science, in all its branches, must be subject to strict rules of logic and experiment, whereas artistic work follows the promptings of the heart and the imagination. Many of our contemporaries accordingly would say that truth and beauty have nothing in common, and yet the leading personalities in the realm of artistic creation have always felt that true art should flow from the same deep source in the being of man as do knowledge and cognition. To take one example, Goethe was not only a seeker of beauty but also of truth, and as a young man he strove by all possible means to acquire knowledge of the world and to find answers to the great riddles of existence. Prior to his journey to Italy, which was to take him to a country of much longed-for ideals, he had pursued his search for truth together with his Weimar friends and studied, among other things, the philosophy of Spinoza, who sought to find a uniform substance in all the phenomena of life. Spinoza's dissertations on the concept of God made a deep impression on Goethe. Together with Merck and other friends, he believed he could hear in Spinoza something like a voice which spoke through all surrounding phenomena and seemed to give intimations concerning the source of existence, an idea which could go some way to satisfying his Faustian aspirations. But Goethe had too great a mind to gain from a conceptual analysis of Spinoza's work 
a large enough picture of truth and knowledge. What he felt about this and what his heart longed for will become clearer to us if we follow him on his travels in Italy, where he beheld great works of art and experienced in them an echo of the art of antiquity, feeling in them what he had hoped in vain to feel for the ideas of Spinoza. He was then able to write to his friends in Weimar, quote, One thing is certain, that ancient artists had as much knowledge of nature and as sure an idea of what can be represented and of how it should be done as Homer did. Unfortunately, works of art of the highest order are all too few. But when one contemplates them, one's only desire is to get to know them thoroughly and then to depart in peace. These great works of art are at the same time the greatest masterpieces of nature, because they have been made by human beings according to true and natural laws. Everything arbitrary or fanciful falls away. There is necessity. There is God. As he says, Goethe believed he could discern that the great artists who had created such works had drawn on their soul forces and proceeded in accordance with the same laws that nature itself had followed. This can mean only that in Goethe's view the laws of nature which operate in the mineral, plant and animal kingdoms are raised to a new level and gain new strength in the human soul coming to expression in the soul's creative powers. Therefore Goethe, feeling the laws of nature actively at work in these works of art, writes to his Weimar friends and says, quote, Everything arbitrary or fanciful falls away. Here is necessity. Here is God. Quote. At such a moment we see Goethe's heart stirred by the recognition that art achieves its greatest manifestations only when they spring from the same foundations as comes all knowledge and cognition. And we realize how profoundly Goethe feels this to be true when he declared later on, quote, Beauty is a manifestation of nature's secret laws, which would otherwise have remained hidden forever. Close quote. Thus Goethe sees art as a revelation of nature's laws, as a language which announces what is attained in another manner, by way of knowledge, in other fields of investigation. If we now turn from Goethe to a personality of more recent times, who also sought to invest art with a mission, and through art to bestow on humankind something related to the source of existence, if we turn to Richard Wagner, we find in his writings where he endeavors to clarify for himself the nature and significance of artistic creation, a number of similar indications of the inner relation between truth and beauty, knowledge and art. Referring to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, he says that this music conveys something like a revelation from another world, something quite different from anything we could grasp in merely rational or logical terms. Of these revelations through art, one thing at least can be said with certainty. They act on the soul with a convincing force and fill our feelings with a perception of truth, in face of which all merely logical or rational intellectual power is helpless. Again, in writing about symphonic music, 
Wagner says that something sounds forth from its various instruments as though they were organs for revealing the secrets of creation. For they manifest something like the primal feelings of creation, according to which chaos was ordered and harmonized long before any human heart was there to sense them. Thus in the manifestations of art, Wagner saw a mysterious truth, a revelation, that could stand on an equal footing with what we otherwise call cognition and knowledge. Something else should be mentioned as well. When we acquaint ourselves with great works of art from a spiritual scientific point of view, we have the feeling that they communicate a different kind of manifestation of humankind's search for truth, and spiritual scientists feel related to this message. In fact, it is no exaggeration to say that they feel more closely related to the revelations of an artist's mind than they do to some of the things that are accepted so lightheartedly today as so-called spiritual revelations. Why is it that genuinely artistic personalities attribute to art this kind of mission, and that spiritual scientists in their very hearts feel so strongly drawn to the mysterious revelations of great art? We will approach an answer to this question by gathering up and applying some of the things with which we have become acquainted in this winter's lectures. If we are to study the significance and task of art from this point of view, we must not be led by human opinions or the quibblings of the intellect, but let the facts of the evolution of the world and of humankind speak for themselves. So we must look at the way in which art itself has developed and disclosed itself in the course of human evolution. We will let art itself speak to us of the significance of the various forms it has taken over the course of time. If we wish to trace the beginnings of art, as it first appears among humankind in the art of poetry, then according to ordinary ideas we have to go a long way back. We will start by going only as far as the extant documents will take us. We will go back to a figure often regarded as legendary, to Homer, the originator of Greek poetry, whose work has come down to us in the two great epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Whoever was the author or authors of these two poems, we will not go into that question today, the remarkable thing is that both these poetical works begin on a quite impersonal note. Quote, Sing, O muse, of the wrath of Achilles, close quote, is how the Iliad, the first of Homer's epics, begins. And, quote, Sing, O muse, of a much-traveled man, close quote, are the opening words of the second epic, the Odyssey. The author wishes to indicate that he is indebted to a higher power for the fact that the epic comes to him from elsewhere, and that he can best describe this fact, as we can realize if we have any understanding of Homer, by not referring to what he speaks out of himself, but what he is inspired to say by a higher power that was not only a symbol but a real objective being. If this invocation to the muse means nothing to modern readers, the lack is not due to Homer's having made use of a mere symbol 
but to the circumstance that they themselves are no longer aware of the experiences from which a poem as impersonal as Homer's could have come. And if we are to understand this impersonal element in early Western poetry, we must ask what might have preceded this new beginning. Where did this form of poetry itself spring from? If we look at development in a spiritual scientific sense, we come to the old questions of the forms of human consciousness altogether. We have often emphasized that in the course of millennia human soul forces have changed and that there was a point at which they took their start. In the far distant past, beyond the reach of external history but open to spiritual scientific investigation, people's whole consciousness functioned differently and human souls were endowed with a primitive, dreamy clairvoyance as a natural ability. Before human beings had descended so deeply into a material existence that they perceived the world in the way they do today, they saw the spiritual world around them as something real and populated by beings. We have already spoken of the fact that this ancient clairvoyance was different from the kind of clairvoyance that can be acquired by training today, and that is bound up with a clearly defined center in the life of the soul, by means of which human beings take hold of themselves as an I capital. This feeling of being an ego, which has developed through long ages, did not exist in the far distant past. But not having this center in their inner being, the spiritual senses of human beings were open to their environment, and they saw the spiritual world in a kind of dream that showed them spiritual realities. Yet it was still a kind of dreamy, egoless, clairvoyant consciousness with which they saw it. However, they actually saw into the spiritual world from which their own inner being had come in the primal past. Powerful pictures, as in a dream, of the forces behind our physical existence appeared to them. They saw their gods and the actions and events that were played out among them. Present-day research is actually wrong in supposing that the sagas of the different peoples were merely the product of popular fantasy. If it is thought that in the remote past the human soul functioned just as it does today, except that it was more prone to imagining things than to thinking intellectually according to fixed laws, and that the figures preserved in their sagas were a product of their imagination, that is itself the fantasy, and those who believe these things are the ones who are imagining things. Where the people of those ancient times were concerned, the events described in their mythologies were realities. Myths, sagas, and even fairy tales and legends were born out of a primeval faculty in the human soul. This is connected with the fact that human beings did not yet function as they do today, for they had not yet acquired the firm center in which they can be themselves. And not yet having this center, they could not shut themselves off in their ego within the narrowly defined boundaries of their soul and were not yet separate from their environment. They lived within this environment as an integral part of it, whereas today we feel essentially separated from the outer world. 
And just as human beings today can feel in their bodily organism the inflow and outflow of the physical strength they need to sustain their life, so primeval human beings, with their clairvoyant consciousness, were aware of spiritual forces flowing in and out of them, so that they lived in an inter excuse me in an inner interrelationship with the forces of the larger world, and could say, quote, "When something takes place in my inner being, when I think, feel, or will, I am not a separate being." but am open to receiving the forces of the beings who appear to my inner sight. And these beings I see outside me stimulate me to have thoughts and feelings and to express will impulses. They felt that spiritual powers were active in their thinking, and when their feelings ebbed and flowed, spiritual powers were busy there. And when their will performed an action, It was divine spiritual powers pouring their will and their goals into them. In those primal times, human beings felt themselves to be vessels through which spiritual powers expressed themselves. Here we are looking back to a period far away in the past, but this period extended through all sorts of intermediate stages right up to the time of Homer. It is easy to discern that Homer was continuing to give expression to humanity's primeval consciousness. We need only look at some features of the Iliad. Homer was describing that tremendous battle between the Greeks and the Trojans. But how did he do this? What did the Greeks believe was the reason for fighting? Although Homer may not start with this, there was more in this struggle than an antagonism generated by the passions and desires that stem from the human ego? Was it merely the passions of the Trojans and the Greeks, both as people and as a nation, that clashed in this struggle? Was it actually ego forces alone that were at work on the battlefield? No. The saga, which shows us the connection between primeval consciousness and Homer's consciousness, tells how three goddesses, Hera, Pallas Athena and Aphrodite competed at a festival for the prize for the most beautiful among them, and that a human connoisseur of beauty, Paris, the son of the king of Troy, was appointed to judge the contest. Paris gave the prize to Aphrodite, who had promised him the most beautiful woman on earth for his wife. The woman was Helen, wife of Menelaus of Sparta, and the only way of winning her was by abduction. In revenge for this outrage, the Greeks armed themselves for war against the Trojans, whose country lay on the far side of the Aegean Sea, and it was there that the struggle was fought out. Why did human passions flare up, and why did all the events take place which Homer calls upon the muse to narrate? Were these merely events taking place among human beings in the physical world? No. Greek consciousness shows us that behind what is going on among the human beings there is the quarrel among the goddesses. The Greek consciousness of that time, looking for the reasons for what is happening in the physical world, would say, quote, I cannot find here the causes that bring human beings to attack one another. I must look up to a higher realm where divine powers confront one another. Close quote. 
the godlike forces that were seen in pictorial form, as we have described, influenced human conflicts. This is how the first great work of poetic art, Homer's Iliad, arose out of humanity's primeval consciousness. What we find in Homer has been put into metrical form and is presented from the standpoint of a later consciousness as taking place among human beings, but it is an echo of what an earlier primeval consciousness actually saw. What has actually happened is that if we look into the period just before Homer, we shall find the point in evolution where, for the people of the Greek world, clairvoyant consciousness ceased and only an echo of it remained. A person of primeval times would have said, I see my gods fighting in the spiritual world which lies open to my clairvoyant consciousness. A person of Homer's times no longer had this perception, but there was still a living memory of it. And just as those who were still part of the world of the gods felt inspired by it, Homer, in writing his epics, felt the same divine forces actively at work in his soul. Therefore he could say, quote, This is being spoken by the muse that inspires me inwardly. Close quote. Homer's poetry is thus directly connected with primeval myths, if these are properly understood. Looking at Homer in this way, we can see something occurring in Homer as a kind of substitute for the old clairvoyance, the ruling cosmic powers, by withdrawing direct clairvoyant vision from human consciousness, closed the door to the spiritual world. But they felt something in its place that could live similarly in the soul and could call forth a creative force. Poetic imagination is a compensation for the loss of ancient clairvoyance. Now let us recall something else. In the lecture on conscience, we showed that the withdrawal of the old clairvoyance occurred in quite different ways and in different areas of earth evolution. In the East, the old clairvoyance persisted up until a relatively late date. More toward the West, among the peoples of Europe, clairvoyant faculties existed to a lesser extent. One of the reasons for this was that a strong ego feeling came to the fore, while other soul powers and faculties were still relatively undeveloped. This ego feeling emerged quite differently in different parts of Europe. It was different in the north from the west, and especially different in southern Europe. In Sicily and Italy in particular it developed, in pre-Christian times, most intensely of all. Whilst in the East, people's soul forces had continued to live in and out of the body state with no ego feeling. People in these parts of Europe were developing a strong ego feeling because they no longer possessed the old clairvoyance. To the extent that the spiritual world withdraws from human beings outside, an ego feeling lights up within them. And this happened particularly in the region of Italy and Sicily. There were certain times then when there was a tremendous difference between the souls of the Asiatic peoples and the souls living in the regions we have specified here. Over in Asia we see cosmic mysteries still unrolling before the soul in mighty dream pictures. 
and human beings witnessing the deeds of gods unfolding before their spiritual sight. And what such people were able to relate was of the nature of a primeval account of the actual spiritual happenings at the foundation of the world. And, when the old clairvoyance was replaced by its later substitute, imagination, this gave rise, especially over in the East, to vivid allegories, pictorial images. Among the Western peoples, in Italy and Sicily, a different faculty, arising from a firmly grounded ego, produced a kind of excess of strength and enthusiasm that broke forth from the soul, unaccompanied by any direct spiritual vision, but inspired by a longing to reach up in the form of presentiment to what the soul could no longer see. Here, therefore, we do not have a recounting of the deeds of the gods, but out of this ardent devotion to what they felt as a presentiment, there sprang forth from their souls in the form of human words or song the first prayer, songs of praise addressed to powers they could not see because clairvoyant consciousness was not so strongly developed. In Greece and the country in between, the two worlds meet. There were people there who were stimulated in both directions. Pictorial vision comes from the east, and from the west there comes an enthusiasm which inspires devotional hymns to the divine spiritual powers of which they still had a presentiment. This intermingling of the two streams in Greek culture made possible a continuation from the poetry of Homer, which we can place in the 8th or 9th century B.C., to the works of Aeschylus, three or four hundred years later. Aeschylus comes before us as a personality who was certainly no longer open to the full power of Eastern vision, the convincing power we find in Homer as an echo of the old vision of the deeds of the gods and their influence on humankind. This echo was already very weak, so weak that, as a feeling, to start with, Aeschylus felt something like disbelief in the pictures of the world of the gods, which human beings had previously seen, whilst they still had the old clairvoyance. Homer, we find, knew very well that human consciousness once reached up to the divine spiritual powers, which are behind the interplay of human passions and emotions in the physical world. Homer, accordingly, does not only describe the battle that takes place, but Zeus and Apollo intervene where human passions are involved, and their influence is apparent. The gods are a reality, and the poet makes way for them in his poem. How different this is with Aeschylus! The western stream, with its emphasis on the human ego and the inner isolation of the human soul, had a particularly strong effect on him. Therefore Aeschylus is now capable of portraying human beings acting from out of their ego and beginning to detach their consciousness from the inflow of divine powers. Instead of the gods whom we still find in Homer, there appears an active human being, though still at an initial stage. Aeschylus now becomes the dramatist, who puts the active human being at the center of the action. The influence of the pictorial imagination of the East was bound to lead to epic poetry, whereas Western influence, with its emphasis on the personal ego, gave rise to drama, 
wherein the man of action is the central character. Let us take the example of Orestes, who is guilty of matricide and in consequence sees the Furies. Yes, Homer still figures, things do not pass away all that quickly. Aeschylus is still aware that the gods were once visible in picture form, but he is very near giving up that belief. It is very characteristic that it is Apollo who is still active in full strength, inciting Orestes to kill his mother. But, later on, it is no longer the gods that wield the power, but the human ego begins to stir, and Orestes's ego asserts itself. Apollo is even proved wrong, and he is resisted. It is precisely when he tries to take action that we are shown that he can no longer have full power over Orestes. Aeschylus was therefore the right poet to dramatize the figure of Prometheus, the godlike hero who titanically opposes the might of the gods and represents the liberation of humankind from them. Thus we see the awakening, ego-feeling, brought over by way of the secrets of human evolution from the West, mingling in the soul of Aeschylus with memories of the pictorial imagination from the East, and that from this conjunction drama was born. And it is very interesting what a wonderful way tradition confirms the findings derived entirely from spiritual scientific research. One remarkable account partly acquits Aeschylus of the charge that he had betrayed some of the secrets of the mysteries, because he had actually not been initiated into the Eloicinian mysteries. It was never a matter of portraying something that he could have acquired from temple secrets and from which Homer's poetry had come. He was actually a relative stranger to them. In fact, the story goes that at Syracuse, in Sicily, he had acquired knowledge of secrets appertaining to the emergence of the human ego. This emergence of the I, capital, comes to expression in a different form in the regions where those belonging to the Orphic cult developed the old form of Ode, the hymn, which raised people up to the divine spiritual worlds that could no longer be seen but only sensed in imagination. This was a step forward for art. It grew quite naturally away from the old truth and made its way toward the human ego, developing the way it has because it was intended that it should encompass the human ego with its whole capacity of thinking, striving, and willing. Inasmuch as human beings, after becoming oriented in the outer world, withdrew into their inner being, the figures of the poems of Homer metamorphosed into the dramatic characters of Aeschylus, and side by side with the epic, drama now arose. So, we see primeval truths living on in another form in art. And the achievements of ancient clairvoyance reproduced by poetic imagination. And all that we preserved from ancient times in art was applied to the human personality, to the human ego that was becoming aware of itself. And now we will take an immense step forward in time, on through many centuries to the 13th and 14th century of the Christian era, to Dante, that tremendous medieval personality who in so impressive a manner leads us to the region to which the human ego can attain 
when, by its own endeavors, it ascends to vision of the divine spiritual world. With his title Divine Comedy, 1472, Dante created a work which was read and reread by Goethe. It affected him so strongly that when, in his old age, an acquaintance sent him a new translation of it, he wrote his thanks to the sender in verse, quote, Great gratitude is due to him who brings us freshly to this book once more, the book which in such a glorious manner makes us cease all our searchings and complaints. Quote. What steps did art take in its progress from Aeschylus to Dante? How does Dante present the divine spiritual world to us again? How does he lead us through its three stages, inferno, purgatory, and heaven, the worlds which lie behind our physical existence? Here we can see how the fundamental spiritual impulse that guides humankind's evolution has indeed continued to work in the same direction. Aeschylus is still clearly in touch with spiritual forces. Prometheus encounters the gods, Zeus, Hermes, and so on. Agamemnon also has dealings with gods. This is an echo still of what people saw through their ancient clairvoyant consciousness. With Dante it is quite different. He shows us how solely by means of immersing himself in his own soul and by developing the forces slumbering in the soul and defeating everything that hinders this development, he was able, as he says, quote, in the middle point of life, close quote, parenthesis, pinpointing the 35th year of his life, close parenthesis, to turn his gaze to the spiritual world. Whereas people endowed with the old clairvoyance turned their gaze outward to their spiritual environment and Aeschylus still counted on the old divinities being there. In Dante we see a poet who descends into his own soul and remaining entirely within his personality and its inner secrets, enters along this path of personal development into the spiritual world and presents it in the divine comedy in such powerful pictures. In his own individual soul, Dante is quite alone. He is not concerned with outer revelations. We cannot imagine that Dante could have described things the same way as Homer or Aeschylus did, that he would have taken from tradition the figures of the old clairvoyance. For Dante had reached the point of being an advocate of what could be achieved in the Middle Ages entirely from out of the forces of the human personality and is an example of something we have often emphasized here, that human beings have to overcome everything that darkens their clairvoyant sight. Dante shows us all this in vivid soul pictures. Whereas the Greeks still saw realities in the spiritual world, Dante shows us only pictures, pictures of the soul forces which have to be overcome, such as those forces that come from the sentient soul, the rational and the consciousness soul, and tend to hold the ego back from higher stages of development. Plato already drew attention to the forces opposite to these and to their particular merits. Wisdom for the consciousness soul, self-reliant courage for the rational soul, and moderation for the sentient soul. When the ego goes through a development enlisting these good forces, it comes gradually to greater soul experiences, 
which lead into the spiritual world, but the hindrances must first be overcome. Moderation works against intemperance and greed, and Dante shows how this shadow side of the sentient soul can be met and mastered. He depicts it as a she-wolf. We are then shown how the shadow side of the rational soul, senseless aggression, depicted as a lion, can be overcome by the corresponding virtue, self-reliant courage. Finally, we come to wisdom, the virtue of the consciousness soul, wisdom which fails to strive toward the heights, but applies itself to the world in the form of mere shrewdness and cunning, is pictured as a lynx. Lynx eyes represent eyes that are not eyes of wisdom, that are able to gaze into the spiritual world, but eyes focused only on the world of the senses. After Dante has shown us how he defends himself against the forces that hinder development, he describes how he ascends to the world that lies behind physical existence. In Dante we have someone who relies on himself, searching within himself and drawing from out of himself the forces that lead into the spiritual world. Human striving, working in this direction, has now moved entirely from the world outside into the inner human being. Thus in Dante we have a poet who describes what can be experienced in the innermost part of the soul. Poetry, as it moves on, is taking greater hold of the inner life, has entered further into the human ego and become more closely related to it. The figures created by Homer were interwoven with and enclosed in the web of divine spiritual powers. And Homer was indeed aware of this when he says, quote, Let the muse sing the story I have to tell. Close quote. Dante, alone with his soul, knows that the forces that will lead him into the spiritual world must be drawn from within himself. We see it becoming more and more impossible for imagination to depend on what speaks to us from outside. A small example will show that it is now a much deeper matter than mere belief, and what we see at work are forces deeply rooted in the human soul. Gottlieb Friedrich Klopstock was a deeply religious man and a profounder spirit than Homer, who wished to write a sacred epic poem with the conscious intention of doing for modern times what Homer did for antiquity. He wanted to revive Homer's manner, but also be true to himself. So he could not say, quote, Sing for me, O muse, close quote, but has to begin his Messias, titled Messias, with the words, quote, Sing, immortal soul, of the redemption of sinful man. Close quote. Thus we really do see in these representative human beings that progress in artistic crea- that progress in artistic creation is indeed happening in humankind. Now, let us take a further giant stride forward over several centuries and look from Dante to a great poet of the 16th, 17th century, to Shakespeare. Here again we see a remarkable step forward in the sense of a progression. We are not concerned with evaluating or reviewing it, but looking at facts. 
It is not a matter of which one is greater than another, but of essential legitimate progress. Here in the area we are studying, we see humanity's evolution in its advance from Dante to Shakespeare, going in strange directions. What was it about Dante that specially impressed us? He stands there alone, with his own particular revelations of the spiritual world, and describes the great experience that came to him from within his own soul. Can you imagine that Dante would have given such effective expression to the truth as he saw it, if he had described his visions five or six times over in different ways? Do you not feel that the world into which Dante has transposed himself is such that it can be described once only? This was indeed what Dante did. The world he describes is the world of one man at one particular moment, the moment in which he becomes one with what the spiritual world means to him. Therefore, we have to say, Dante immerses himself in the element of human personality in such a way that it is his very own, and he is dependent on experiencing the whole measure of it. To pass on to Shakespeare, he creates a whole range of characters of every possible kind, an Othello, a Lear, a Hamlet, Cordelia, Desdemonia, but their characters are such that we have no direct perception of anything divine behind these characters. When a spiritual eye, E-Y-E, beholds them in the physical world with their purely human qualities and impulses, we look for what comes directly from their souls in the form of thinking, feeling, and willing. They are all distinct individuals, but can we recognize Shakespeare himself in them? in the way that it is always Dante himself that Dante is describing in depth. No, Shakespeare has taken another step forward. He goes still further into the matter of personality, and not only into one, but into a variety of personalities. Shakespeare leaves himself out of account when he describes Lear, Hamlet, and so on, and is never tempted into presenting how he himself thinks about things, for he himself is completely blotted out and lives entirely with his creative power in the various personalities of his characters. Whereas Dante's presentations have to remain the experience of one person, Shakespeare shows us impulses arising from the inner ego of a human being as seen in a wide variety of characters. Dante's starting point is the human personality, but he remains within it and explores the spiritual world from that vantage point. Shakespeare has gone a step further in this way, coming forth from his own personality and slipping into the various personalities he portrays, immersing himself totally in them. He does not dramatize his own soul life, but what is living in the lives of people we can all see. He creates numerous individuals, a great many personalities, as seen in the outside world, yet they are all created out of their own individual center. We can see here, too, how the evolution of art proceeds. Having originated in the remote past, when human consciousness was devoid of ego feeling, in Dante, art reached the stage of embracing the individual human being, so that the ego itself became a world. 
in Shakespeare, it came to the point where other people's egos became the poet's world. For this step to be possible, art had to leave the spiritual heights where it had actually arisen and descend into the physical existence of sense reality. And this is just what we can see happening when we pass from Dante to Shakespeare. Let us try to compare Dante and Shakespeare from this point of view. Superficial critics may reproach Dante for being a didactic poet, but anyone who understands him and can respond to the whole range and richness of his work will feel that his greatness derives precisely from the fact that all the wisdom and philosophy of the Middle Ages speaks through him. In fact, he owed his whole development, which culminated in the creation of his poetry, to the wealth of medieval wisdom. Its influence worked in the first place on Dante's soul and was again evident later on in the expansion of his personality into a world. Therefore, for the full effect of an understanding of Dante's poetic creation to come about, we must be familiar with the heights of medieval spiritual life. Only then can we come to appreciate the depths and subtleties of his achievement. Certainly, Dante took one step downward. He sought to bring the spiritual content down to lower levels. And this he did by writing in the vernacular, not in Latin, as some of his predecessors had done. He ascends to the greatest heights of spiritual life, but descends into the physical world as far as the vernacular of his place and time. Shakespeare descends still further. The origin of his great poetic characters is nowadays the subject of all sorts of fanciful speculation. But if we are to understand this descent of poetry into the everyday world, often still looked down on by the highly placed, we must bear in mind the following facts. You have to imagine a small theatre in what was then a suburb of London, where plays were produced by actors who, except for Shakespeare himself, would not be rated highly today. Who went to the theatre? The lower classes, those despised by the higher classes of society. At the time when Shakespeare was putting on his plays, it was more fashionable to patronize cockfights and other similar spectacles than to go to the theatre, where people ate and drank and threw their eggshells onto the stage to mark their disapproval, and overflowed onto the stage itself, and the actors went on acting in the midst of their audience. Thus it was before a very low-class London public that these plays were first performed, although many people today fondly imagine that from the first they were acclaimed in the highest circle of cultural life. At best, unmarried sons, who could allow themselves to visit certain obscure resorts in disguise, would go now and then to this theatre. But for respectable people, it would have been highly improper. Poetry had descended into a realm of the most unsophisticated feelings. But nothing in all human nature was alien to Shakespeare's genius as we see in the array of characters he created in this period of human and artistic development. So it happened in respect of external details that art, having been contained within a narrow stream of human guidance, descended to a thoroughly unparticularized human level and broadened into a whole stream running through the midst of everyday life, 
And anyone who looks more deeply into this will see how necessary it was that a lofty spiritual stream should be brought down to lower levels in order that such vital figures as Shakespeare's highly individual characters should appear. Now we will move to times nearer our own, to Goethe. We will try to connect up with him the figure he created in his poetic work titled Faust, in whom were embodied all his ideals, aims, and renunciations during the whole sixty years he worked on it. Everything he experienced in the course of his very rich life, in his innermost soul and in his contact with the outer world, as he climbed from one stage of knowledge to another in his search for ever deeper solutions to the riddles of the world, all this comes to meet us again in the figure of Faust. As a poetic creation, what kind of figure is Faust? What we could say of Dante is that what he described was the work of one individual presenting his own individual vision. Goethe's Faust did not arise in the same way. He does not describe the results of vision. He makes no claim to having had it revealed to him at a particular solemn moment, as Dante does with regard to the Divine Comedy. In each instance, Goethe shows us that the things he is presenting are the result of inner struggle. And whereas Dante must have gone through his experiences from one particular aspect in which he is bound to describe them, Goethe's experiences though also of an individual kind, were transferred to the objective nature of Faust. What Dante gives us is his most personal inner experience. Goethe's experiences were also personal, but the actions and sufferings of Faust, the poetic figure, are not those of Goethe's life. In no instance do they coincide with Goethe's life. They are a free transformation of what Goethe had experienced in his own soul. While Dante can be identified with his divine comedy, it would take almost a literary historian to identify Goethe with Faust. With his immense genius, he transferred his experiences in altered form into the poetic figure. Assertions such as, Goethe is Faust, Faust is Goethe, are merely a play with words. Faust is, of course, a single figure, but we could not imagine that an array of Faust-like figures could have been created, as numerous as the characters created by Shakespeare. The ego depicted by Goethe in his Faust can only be created once. Besides Hamlet, besides Hamlet, Shakespeare could create Lear, Othello, and so on. It was possible, it is true, that besides Faust, Goethe also wrote Tasso and Iphigenia, but we are aware of the difference between them. Faust is not Goethe. Fundamentally speaking, he is every man. He embodies Goethe's deepest longings, but as a poetic figure, he was actually entirely detached from Goethe's own personality. Dante presents us with one person's vision. Faust is a character who in a certain sense lives in each one of us. This marks a further advance. Shakespeare could create characters so individualized that he immersed himself in them and created them from their very own center. Goethe could not create a second figure similar to Faust. He certainly makes him an individualized figure, yet he is not a single individualized person. 
he is an individualization of every man. Whereas Shakespeare entered into the soul nature of Lear, Othello, Hamlet, Cordelia, and so on, Goethe entered into the highest human element in each single person. He thereby creates a figure that is representative of each individual person, and this figure detaches itself from Goethe's personality as the poet who actually created it, and lets Faust stand before us as an objective, independent figure. Art takes a further step here, along the path we have been describing. Starting from the direct spiritual perception of a higher world, art takes hold of man's inner life to an ever-increasing degree. In Dante this is at its most intense stage, when the individual is entirely on his own. In Shakespeare the ego ascends again from within and enters other souls. With Goethe the ego goes forth and immerses itself in the soul life of every man. But now, and this is what we see in Faust, in the form of what is typically the same in each single individual soul. In Faust, the ego is coming forth, and because it is able to go forth and understand other souls, only if it develops its own soul powers and enters into the spiritual nature of another person, It is in line with the continued advance in artistic creativity that Goethe should have been led to depict not only physical actions and experiences, but also the spiritual processes that everyone can experience if they open their ego to the spiritual world. Poetry took its way from the spiritual world into the human ego, and in Dante it took hold of the ego at the deepest level of inner life. In Goethe we see the ego going forth from itself again and finding its way into the spiritual world. We see the spiritual experiences of ancient humanity being brought down into the Iliad and the Odyssey. And in Goethe's Faust the spiritual world comes forth again and is dramatized for all people to see. This is how we should respond to the powerful concluding spiritual tableau of Faust, where man, having, after having descended into the depths, works his way up again by developing himself from within outward, and through unfolding spiritual forces sees the spiritual world opening before him. It is like hearing a choir of archetypal sounds coming to life again, but which have grown beyond all recognition. There sounds forth from the intransitory world of the spirit what humankind has attained in place of the spiritual vision which they were given in the past in the form of imagination and were able to present in a transient form. Out of the intransitory world were born the transitory poetic figures created by Homer and Aeschylus. Poetry ascends once more from the transitory to the intransitory, when the mystical chorus at the very end of Faust finishes with the words, Everything transient is but a parable. As Goethe shows us, the strength of the human spirit is ascending once more from the physical world into the spiritual world. We have seen artistic consciousness advancing with great strides through the world of its representative poets. 
Art emerges from the spiritual realm, its original source of knowledge. Spiritual vision withdraws more and more in proportion as the sense world commands ever wider attention and increasingly involves the human ego. Human beings have to follow these stages of world evolution and make the journey from the spiritual world to the world of the senses and the world of the ego. If they were only able to take this path outwardly in a scholarly way, their understanding of things would have been solely in rational terms, superficial and intellectual. But to tide over, they were given something else, imagination. What they could no longer see with clairvoyant consciousness, they created out of imagination, in a kind of shadowy reflection of it. It is now imagination that follows human beings along the way, right into their self-awareness, as far as Dante. But the threads that link humankind to the spiritual world can never break, not even when art descends into the isolation of the human ego. Human beings take imagination with them on their way, and when Faust appears we see the spiritual world being created again out of imagination. So we see Goethe's Faust arising at the beginning of an epoch during which humankind is to re-enter the spiritual world where art originated, and as in the intervening period human beings could not reach the spiritual world by means of higher training, the mission of art is to continue spinning the threads that will link the spirituality of the far distant past to the spirituality of the future. Art has indeed already advanced so far that we again have a view of the spiritual world in imagination, as in the second part of Faust. May this intimate to us that human beings are at the point in their evolution where they must once again have knowledge of the spiritual world, where they must develop the powers to enter the spiritual world consciously. Art, in leading human beings in imagination up to the spiritual world, has been preparing the way for spiritual science. When, with full consciousness, human beings will again see with a clear vision into the spiritual world from which art also sprang, and to which art is returning, giving us a perspective of the future. To point the way to that world as far as it is possible today, the world we reach out to with all our human longing, as we have seen in the examples drawn from the world of art, is the task of spiritual science, and it has also been the task of this winter's lectures. We see, then, how justified it is when people feel that what artists can give the world are manifestations of the spiritual world. And art had the mission to give these to the world precisely during the period when direct revelations from the spiritual world were no longer possible. Therefore, Goethe could say of the works of the old masters, quote, There is necessity, there is God. Close quote. They bring to light manifestations of hidden laws of nature which but for art would never be discovered. And Richard Wagner was also able to say that in the music of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony he could hear the manifestations of another world to which mere reason could never rise. The great masters felt that they were the bearers of the spirit 
the original source of everything human. From the past, through the present, into the future. And so we can agree with our deepest understanding, with the words of a poet who felt himself to be an artist, quote, the dignity of humankind has been put in your hands, close quote. This is the way we have endeavored to describe the nature and the mission of art throughout the course of humankind's evolution and to show that art is not as separate from our human sense of truth as people could so easily believe today, but that Goethe may have been right when he refused to speak of the idea of beauty and truth as separate ideas. There is, he said, one idea, that of the power of the divine spiritual element in the world, with its creative laws and its law-governed creativity, and truth and beauty are two manifestations of the one idea. Poets and other artists are constantly referring to an awareness of the fact that the spiritual foundations of human existence speak through art. Or, time and again, there will be artists of a profounder nature who will have the feeling that art gives them the chance to become aware that their work is at the same time a message to humankind from the spiritual world. And so, even when artists are expressing themselves in the most personal way, they feel their art lifted up to a universal human level, and that, in very truth, they are speaking for the whole of humankind when the characters and manifestations in their work give effect to the words spoken by Goethe's chorus, Mysticus, quote, Everything transient is but a parable, close quote. And, on the strength of our spiritual scientific presentations, we may add, art is destined to fructify the parable of transience with the message of eternity, of immortality. That is its mission. That is the end of Lecture 9 and the end of the second volume of Transforming the Soul, Collected Works, Volume number 59 by Rudolf Steiner.